Well, what a perfect song to lead us back into the Gospel of John. And I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 11 this morning. And if you are uh, just started coming to our church, we've been studying the Gospel of John. It started about a year and a half or so ago. And uh, we are uh, halfway through the book here in chapter 11, just 21 chapters. Uh, but we need to keep in mind that we are almost to the end of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so the Gospel of John is kind of uh, disproportionate as far as how much time it spends uh, in the few years, uh, first few years of Jesus' life. Um, Really, in uh, chapters 1 through 12, uh, cover just a a few years, uh, the first few years. Chapters 13 through 17, just a few hours. It's the Upper Room Discourse. And then, really, the last few chapters, 18 through 21, just covers the last few days and even weeks of Jesus' life and ministry here on this earth. And if you want to kind of look and see visually kind of where we're at, there's a little outline that I put in all the bulletins again this morning. Whenever we take a little break, I like to just refresh your memory as far as where we're at, as far as what is the title, what is the theme, what are the key verses, but particularly the outline this morning. Notice that we've seen the incarnation of the Son of God, the presentation of the Son of God, the opposition to the Son of God, which we're, we just concluded, and now we're going to begin this morning looking at the rejection of the Son of God in chapters 11 and 12. Now, you remember back in December, we left off our study in chapter 10, where we saw the final showdown between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd in contrast to the Pharisees were, who were what kind of shepherds? Bad shepherds. And he likened them to thieves and to robbers and to strangers and hirelings. And he, he wanted the Pharisees and his followers to know what made him a better shepherd than them. And so this was the last time that Jesus taught in a, in a public forum. And his intent was to settle the dispute once and for all that he truly was the long-awaited Messiah sent by God to redeem them. But rather than receiving him as their Messiah, you'll remember they rejected his claims and tried to kill him for blasphemy, tried to stone him. And so Jesus eluded their grasp and retreated across the Jordan River. We saw that in chapter 10, verse 40. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. He was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. And so we pick up the story here in chapter 11 where John recounted the classic miracle of the resurrection of his friend Lazarus. Now, apart from the the resurrection of Christ himself, in John's mind, the resurrection of Lazarus provided the greatest proof that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus raised someone from the dead, right? Right? I mean, he raised the widow's son, Luke chapter 7. He raised Jairus' daughter, Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. But both of these kids were raised from the dead right after they died. Whereas we're going to see Lazarus was dead for four days and his body had already begun to decompose. So this was much more dramatic a resurrection than the other two. And consequently, this miracle could not be denied or ignored, 
And yet, ironically, it did confirm the Jewish leader's decision to reject and kill Jesus once and for all. Now, out of all the, the miracles that Jesus performed, John chose seven to include in the gospel. If you remember, we've talked about this, that, that uh, this is the last of seven miracles uh, that he's included. He, he included the turning water into wine, chapter 2 the healing of the nobleman's son, chapter 4, the healing of the paralytic, chapter 5, the feeding of the multitude, chapter 6, walking on water and the stilling of the storm, also in chapter 6, and then restoring sight to a man born blind, chapter 9, and then here in chapter 11, we have the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And John's ultimate purpose, we know, for including these seven miracles in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, was to lead people to place their faith in him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and as a result to experience abundant life on earth and eternal life in heaven. And just to remind you of the theme verse of the book of John, John chapter 20, verse what? Remember? Verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's a lot of other miracles he did I could have included, but I picked these seven. Why? These have been written, verse 31, so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is Christ, the, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, what? Life in his name. And so the title slide is Believe and Live, right? That's the whole point of the Gospel of John, to believe and live. And so the Gospel of John is all about life. It's really one of the main themes of the book. The word life occurs 38 times, some 38 times in John, compared to only seven times in Matthew, only four times in Mark, and only five times in Luke. And so from the opening verses, John wanted his readers to know that life is in Jesus, chapter 1, verse 4, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have what? Eternal life, John 3, 16, right? That, that he is the bread of life, John six thirty five. that unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no life, chapter 6, verse 53, that no one else has the words of eternal life, chapter 6, verse 68, that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly, John 10, 10, and that no one can snatch out of his hand those he grants eternal life, chapter 10, verse 28. And then we come here to chapter 11, where John recorded one of the greatest declarations regarding life and death, along with one of the greatest demonstrations of his power, of Christ's power over death. We have here, right in the heart of chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Notice what they say. You probably already have these underlined in your Bible. You probably already have these memorized. If not, you need to underline these, and you need to memorize these. Jesus said... I am the, what? Resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now we know death is our greatest enemy, is it not, as, as human beings? Uh, we all fear it. We all wish we could avoid it. We do everything to prolong it from happening. But eventually, we'll all succumb to it. And the reason why we all die is because we're all sinners who live in a sin-cursed world. Genesis 2.16, uh, the Lord made it clear to Adam that he could eat from any tree of the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if he ate from that tree, he said, you will surely, what? Die. 
And because he sinned, because they sinned against God, they died spiritually. Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all what? Sin. You just can't say, well, man, if I was Adam, I wouldn't have done that. Oh, yeah, you would have. So would I. We all would have done that, right? We all sin. James 1.14 and 15, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. And so we know that death is a result of sin, and yet none of this has kept mankind from trying to invent ways of prolonging the aging process or hoping to discover some way of, of, of achieving immortality. There's, there's a thing called cybernetics. Maybe we know it better as bionics, right? They're talking about not only can you make a bionic arm or bionic leg, bionic leg you might be able to make bionic organs that might allow people to live a long time, a lot longer than they normally would. Uh, there's a thing called cryonics. Have you heard of cryonics where they're freezing bodies in liquid nitrogen, uh, hoping that they'll discover a, a way to uh, prolong life, immortality, and so people are willing to ante up $200,000 to have themselves frozen, right? So if the day ever comes when somebody discovers some miracle cure, uh, they can take them out of deep freeze, right? And then go on living. Crazy. Well, what if I told you that I found a way that you could live forever? A way that you would never die. Would you be interested? Well, guess what? There is a way, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe that He is God's Son... You will have eternal life in heaven, but if you don't obey him, you will face God's wrath and experience eternal death in hell. That is the message of the Bible. That is the message of the gospel of John. And the resurrection of Lazarus really confirmed this truth, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and this, this miracle served to strengthen the faith of his disciples as well as Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, and also to stimulate faith in those who witnessed this miracle. And so, uh, really, uh, the emphasis in John 11 is on faith. Some form of the word believe occurs at least eight times. Notice just a couple of them. Verse 15, And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may, what? Believe. Uh, Verse 26 Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may, what? Believe that you sent me. And then verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what had done, what? Believed in him. And so I've broken up this passage according to that idea of belief or faith. And so first of all, we're going to see the faith of the students or the disciples in verses 1 through 16. We're going to see the faith of the sisters in verses 17 through 37. And then finally, we're going to see the faith of the spectators in verses 38 to 46. Now, let's look first of all at the faith of the students. And you know that 
that uh, throughout his ministry, Jesus was constantly trying to increase the faith of disciples. Why? Because he knew that after he returned to heaven, they would be left holding the ball. They would have the baton in their hand. They would have the responsibility to carry on his ministry, and he didn't want them to biff it, right? And so he was constantly trying to strengthen their faith. And in light of the fact that, that Jesus had just been denounced by the spiritual leaders of Israel, the people that everybody looked up to as the, the spiritual leaders, the guys who knew uh, what was right and wrong. He had been denounced by them, and they had all had to flee for their lives, lest they be stoned to death. Uh, I think we could say their faith needed to be bolstered a bit, wouldn't you say? And so look at how he does that in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Uh, her sister Martha, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so here John introduces us uh, for the first time to a family who were dear friends to Jesus, a brother and two sisters. And Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha, they lived in a little village called Bethany, which was located about two miles uh, outside of Jerusalem. Uh, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. And apparently, uh, Jesus was a frequent guest in their home when he visited Jerusalem. We can, can assume that from Luke chapter 10, right? Verses 38 to 42, that story of Mary and Martha and how Martha was running around frantically trying to make supper and, and Mary was just sitting there at Jesus' feet drinking it all in and, and Martha got hacked off at Mary and then Jesus confronted Martha and it was just an interesting little scenario. But we get some insight into the, the character and the personality of, of these two daughters, which we're going to see kind of confirmed again uh, here in John chapter 10. Notice how John spotlighted Mary here as the one who had anointed Jesus with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, which uh, again, he's going to go on and talk about uh, in the next chapter, in John chapter 12, but this, this act of devotion was widely known. Uh, again, he was writing after the fact, right? And, and every, everybody knew of this great act of devotion that Mary uh, committed. Notice verse 3, so the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to the end, in, is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Lazarus was deathly sick, and so his sister sent someone to tell Jesus, assuming that he would immediately come heal him like he had done for so many other people who he didn't even know or love as much as he loved them. Notice three times John emphasized the love that Jesus had for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Verse 3, it says, he whom you love is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, excuse me, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And then look at verse 36, even the people knew this. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. Now, based on how much Jesus apparently loved them, we would expect the text to say something like this in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Mary, uh, Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he dropped everything and rushed to their home. But what does it say? 
It says he decided to stay two more days on the east side of the Jordan River. That doesn't really look like he loved them that much. I mean, what's up with that? Well, the truth is that Lazarus was probably already dead by the time Jesus got the news that he was sick. It was probably a day's journey from Bethany to where he was, as best we can tell. And so he died the same day that the messenger arrived. And it says um, that he stayed there two more days. And then we know it took him a day to get there. We, we, we do the math because it says that he was in the grave how many days? Four days. And so, again, we could assume he was already dead. But notice what Jesus said in verse 4. This sickness is not to end in death. He knew that while Lazarus' sickness would take his life, it wouldn't be the end of his life. In fact, he wanted him to die (laughs) so he could bring him back to life, which would bring God glory By bringing him glory as the Son of God, right? Proving that he was God's Son. That's what he says. But for the glory of God, so that the Son may be glorified by this. And so we see that this sickness and this death was ultimately for the glory of God, right? It it should remind us back in in chapter 9, when Jesus... um, healed the man born blind in chapter 2, the disciples asked, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 9, the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So they assumed that he must have done something bad. Either his parents did something bad, or he did something bad, or was going to do something bad. And so that's why he was born blind. And Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, so that I could show off my glory as the Son of God. And so just a, a simple reminder, listen, when you, whenever you get sick, okay, don't assume that somehow you've displeased the Lord and He's punishing you, He's judging you. And that's not always the case. Sometimes you just get sick because we live in a sin-cursed world, right? And uh, that's just what happens. One commentator said this, there is absolutely no suggestion that Lazarus' sickness was a result of some special sin in his life. Rather, he is presented as a devoted disciple and a special object of the Savior's love. Listen, beloved, godly people get sick. And it's not always God's will that they get well, that they're healed from that sickness. Sometimes God allows his people to get sick and even stay sick to reveal his glory by the way he graciously grants them strength and stamina to endure and rejoice in their pain and suffering. And when people look on and go, "Ah, this is unbelievable. I can't believe that you are are so at peace in the midst of all the pain and all the agony and all the, the anguish that you've experienced in your life that you can still be trusting the Lord, that you can still have joy and, and, and be at peace. And, and, and what happens? You, you, you realize it's not you, so you give all the glory to who? To God. You say, it's God. It's, it's God in me through Christ. And I think this is, this is so precious to think about that, that Jesus knew the pain and the agony that Lazarus would have to experience when he died And he also knew the grief and the anguish that his sisters would have to endure. 
And yet he allowed it all to happen for the Father's glory. And in the same way, it's hard for us to watch someone that we love go through difficult times. It helps to know that somehow God is being glorified in it, right? And so I'm sure this was hard for Jesus to stay away for those days that he was waiting on the Lord to give him direction to go back when it was time. I appreciate Warren Wearsby's thoughts here. He said, quote, God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from the problems and pains of life. After all, the father loves his son, and yet the father permitted his beloved son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly, they unite in Jesus Christ. So don't question, right, God's love for you. When you're going through difficult times, like, well, what's up with this? God must not love me. No, even the pain that you're experiencing, the anguish, the grief you're experiencing is a demonstration of his love for you. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So the disciples thought he was crazy. What are you thinking? Going anywhere near Jerusalem since they're not just plotting to kill you at this point. They are trying to kill you. They're attempting to kill you. They're waiting with rocks in their hands. And yet Jesus reassured them that as long as he was doing God's will, right, and doing God's work, then God would protect him. God would preserve him. If you walk in the light, right, God keeps you from stumbling. We, we've used this expression before, God's man's immortal till God's done with him, right? That was Jesus. You couldn't touch him until God was done. But I would say this, if you're living according to your own will, you're, you're, you're seeking to do your own thing, it's like you're walking in the dark and you are bound to stumble and fall. And so let's make sure that we can say this, right? That we are walking in the light, doing God's work, doing God's will. Notice verse 11, this he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus likened Lazarus dying to falling asleep. This was a common metaphor for death in the New Testament. Um, I think it's simply because a dead person looks like they're sleeping. You ever been to a funeral and looked at the open coffin? You looked in there? Looks like they're sleeping, right? And so this is simply figurative language, and I don't think ever intended to teach what some uh, have come up with this doctrine called soul sleep. You ever heard of that, soul sleep? Basically what they say is that when a person dies, their, their soul lives in the state of 
unconsciousness until their bodies are resurrected in the end times. Well, that's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches that when a believer dies, their soul is instantly in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, right? Not like a thousand years from now, you know, when I return. No, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, being present with the Lord, right? In Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, he was having this wrestling match in his mind. Was, was, well, I really want to go to heaven, die and go to heaven, but I really want to stay here and serve the Lord, and I don't know which one to choose. Trust me, if he was going to go into some soul sleep, he would have been sticking around here, right? To get, get some more work done. But he knew that he, if he were to die, he would have been instantly in the presence of the Lord, and that was a very attractive to him, very appealing to him. And so, again, the disciples here thought Jesus was saying that Lazarus was just sleeping, which meant he would recover. And so they used that as an excuse, hey, we don't have to go to Bethany now, right? And so Jesus clarified that he was indeed dead. And notice this, he says, I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad he's dead. I'm glad I wasn't in Bethany to keep him alive. Why? Because now your faith can be greatly strengthened by seeing me raise him from the dead. Merrill Tenney said this, Jesus considered this an opportunity for a supreme demonstration of power that would certify the Father's accreditation of him as the Son and confirm the faith of the sisters and the disciples. And if you have any question whether or not the disciples needed some Need their faith strengthening? Just listen to, to Thomas's response here in verse 16. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, we know Thomas is mentioned a, a few times in John's gospel, most notoriously in John chapter 20, when he refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he got to actually stick his hands in in the nail prints, right, and stick his hand in the side. Uh, And that's why he earned the nickname Doubting Thomas. Uh, He's called Didymus here, which means twin. Apparently, he was a twin. Uh, There's no, um, no information about that anywhere in the scriptures. But if you ask me, they should have called him Eeyore, not Didymus, right? Because he's expressing here this kind of gloomy, pessimistic attitude. Well, we might as well go to Jerusalem because we're all going to die. That's one way you could take this. On the other hand, he was expressing bravery, wasn't he? And loyalty to Christ, his Lord, his Master. But obviously, again, if Thomas's response is any indication, the, the disciples needed their faith strengthened. And they were about to get that, that uh, strength as they watched what went down. And so we see the faith of the disciples. Secondly, let's look at the faith of the sisters. The faith of the sisters. Jesus was not only concerned about strengthening the faith of the disciples, he was also concerned about strengthening the faith of Mary and Martha. Look at verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Again, there would be no no question that he, was, that he was dead. There would be no one able to claim that, well, he wasn't really dead. He was just uh, passed out. You know, he, no, his body was beginning to decompose, okay? I think in the King James it says he stinketh, okay, by this point, right? Um, 
And so when he brought him back to life, there would be nobody wanting to, to protest the legitimacy of the miracle. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. So Bethany was as we've already mentioned, in close proximity to Jerusalem, just two miles away. And so lots of their friends and their relatives were able to come and mourn with them. They probably even hired professional wailing women. That's what they were called. You could hire ladies to come and just, and just cry and mourn you know, with you. And they had, they had musicians, and that was just kind of a traditional Jewish funeral as you actually hired people to come and wail on behalf of your lost loved one. Verse 20, notice, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, that she ran out to meet him on the outskirts of town, while Mary stayed back home. Now, again, a little more insight into their personalities, right? Martha was the go-getter. She was the more aggressive one. She was the get-it-done girl, right? She heard Jesus was coming. She was going to you know, get out there, right? Wouldn't even let him get to the house. She had to, to, to beat him to the edge of town. And Mary just stayed home. She was probably more contemplative, right? Uh, grieving uh, the loss of her brother. She was just mulling it all, all over. Not so much a woman of action as her sister. But notice, both sisters said the same thing exact thing when they saw Jesus. Verse 21, Martha said, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, when Mary shows up, she saw him and fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they appear to be in the same place in their their minds, but notice how Jesus ministered to both of them in a very unique and specific way. And this is the, this is the beauty of, of being omniscient, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like, um, you know, I go to minister to somebody and I think they need this when they really need this. And then I go and minister to this person, I think they need this, but they really needed that, right? I'm not Jesus. Uh, I try to be like Jesus, but, you know, sometimes you admonish someone who just needs to be encouraged. And sometimes you encourage somebody that needs to be admonished, Right? But Jesus knew exactly where these two gals were at, and Martha needed to know that Jesus was in control. And so her issue was theology, okay? Mary, on the other hand, needed to know that Jesus cared. She just needed sympathy. And this is important. You show up at somebody's house after they lose a loved one, you know, be very careful. You don't want to show up and be the Bible answer man. And start just spouting off all these verses about, hey, God works all things together for good. And, you know, they know that. They don't need to hear that necessarily at that point. They just need you to put your arm around them and hug them and cry with them. At some point, they may need to be reminded, right, of the truth of Scripture. And so it seems that, that, that Jesus engaged Martha in a theological discussion and provided her with intellectual support. That's what she needed. She, so, so he challenged her. To think biblically about the situation, Mary 
on the other hand, came and fell down at Jesus' feet. She was broken. She was grieving. So Jesus just provided her emotional support. He, he, just, he just cried with her. Isn't that beautiful? How Jesus just knew where these girls were at. And so no matter what you're going through, Jesus knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you need and will minister to you accordingly. So never, ever doubt that God is in control or that God cares. And don't waste your time brooding over the if-onlys. If only you had come sooner. If only we hadn't moved. If only I hadn't married them. If only I had taken this job, if only we had more money, if only, if only, if only, don't waste your time with that. Now, granted, the first thing that, that Martha did when she saw Jesus was just honestly express how she felt. She was disappointed that Jesus hadn't come sooner and kept her brother from dying. And I think this is good for us here, that, that we need to learn to be honest with God It's okay to be honest with God and to share our feelings with Him, even if we know they're wrong. You ever said some things like in prayer and just in frustration, you said some things, you're like, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have said that. I know that's not right. I know that doesn't honor you. I know that's not what the Bible says, but sometimes that's just how you feel, right? I I think it's, I think, personally, I think God's okay with that. He he knows that you're, you're wrestling through this stuff, Right? And he's patient, he's kind. I think some of us husbands could, could go to school on God a little bit, right, when our wives start going off on some stuff that, that, that we know is not true, right? And they're just, you're like, whoa, what, that's not right. That, you shouldn't be thinking that way, right? And we want to correct them. You shouldn't feel that way. It's not true, right? I don't know about you guys. It's hard for me just to listen to, to Kel sometimes when she's just kind of expressing her feelings, right? And I'm like, I want to correct her thinking, but sometimes I just need to shut up and listen and let her emote, right? Let her feel. That's very helpful, not just for women, but for us sometimes as guys when we're in the presence of God. But notice how Martha went on to express her confidence after she kind of got that off her chest, right? I just want you to know I'm not happy with you, Jesus. Okay, you could have come sooner, all right? But I have, I have absolute confidence in the fact that you can bring about good from this tragedy. I think that she probably got the report back when Jesus in verse 4 said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. I think the messenger may have taken that message back and reported it to them. You say, how do you know that? Well, I think so because of verse 40, Jesus said to her when, when she said, hey, what are you doing opening the grave? This is going to stink, Right? Notice verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So I think that she knew that he was up to something good here, as he always is, right? But based on what she said next, I don't think she was expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead right then and there. Notice verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she affirmed that that she believed in the resurrection of the dead in the last day, but what she didn't realize was that Jesus wasn't talking about the last day. He was talking about today, right now. 
Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a great question. And again, here's the, here's the fifth of seven I am statements. There's seven miracles and there's seven statements that John included very strategically in his gospel to show how Jesus claimed to be equal to God as he revealed himself in the Old Testament to Moses at the burning bush. He said, I am, right? So he said, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And here, number five, I am the resurrection and the life. And I think Jesus in this statement was, was anticipating his second coming when he would resurrect the buried bodies of all true believers and reunite them with their souls and, and replace the earthly bodies of those who are still living when he returns with glorified bodies that will never die. We, we know this um, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 which Paul included in his letter to the Thessalonians because they had lost some loved ones. Some, some people had died, and somehow they got the idea that they had missed the resurrection, that they were lost forever. And so Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. There it is, right? The euphemism for death. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Notice Paul said, didn't say, don't grieve. Quit your grieving. No, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to cry. It's helpful. It's necessary. But just as you grieve, make sure you don't grieve like the rest of the world who have no hope. You say, well, what's the hope? Well, here's the hope, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then I love verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. This was, this was to comfort us. That's why Paul put it here in this letter, was to comfort us. And so we, we know that, and, and Mary apparently knew that, maybe not in that detail that we as the, the church know today, but at the same time, I think Jesus wanted to know if, Mary, excuse me, if Martha actually believed that he had the power to resurrect Lazarus right then and there. And so he asked her, do you believe this? And notice verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, I'm going to confess to you that that, that, that kind of somehow flew under the radar all these years for me. And we all know Peter's confession, right? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we always talk about Peter's confession of faith in Christ, right? Well, how did I miss this one, all right? This is, this is no less of a significant confession of faith. This is Martha's confession. Said essentially the same thing. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. There was no question in her mind who he was. Notice verse 28. 
When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. So Martha runs back to the house, tells Mary that Jesus was asking for her. She immediately gets up, runs out to see him. Those who were sitting around realize she's gone. Where did she go? She's probably going to the tomb. We need to go with her to do our job. We need to be be there for her, to mourn with her, to cry with her. And then when Mary just saw Jesus, she just crumpled to the ground at his feet, sobbing uncontrollably, and he saw everyone else who had come with her crying as well, and it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And this was not so much inward grief as it was anger at the pain and the sorrow that sin and death had caused these people who were so dear to him. The word there, deeply moved, literally was used to describe the snorting of a horse. You think about a horse just kind of snorts, right? And so William McDonald mentions this. He says, doubtless, Jesus thought of all the sadness, suffering, and death which had come into the world as a result of man's sin. The fact that Jesus wept was an evidence of his true humanity. He shed real tears of grief when he witnessed the terrible effects of sin on the human race. And we're all familiar with John 11.35, right? The shortest and possibly the sweetest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. This wasn't the only time Jesus shed tears. He shed tears when he was um, entering Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. It said he, he wept as he looked over the city that he knew would reject him. It also says in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus wept in the garden. It doesn't say that in the Gospels, but in Hebrews it says that he, he was there in the garden with loud cries and, and, and many tears. So he shed tears in the garden of Gethsemane as he was wrestling with the Lord. And again, his tears revealed his humanity and therefore his ability to relate to our pain and our suffering. That he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 3. Notice Hebrews for a second. Just turn over there uh, to Hebrews uh, just quickly because you need to see these verses. Again, I think you're familiar with these verses, but to me these are two passages that are provide so much comfort, so much hope and encouragement to, to us as believers. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a what? 
a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted or tried in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted and tried. And then over in chapter 4, verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted or tried in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, what's the point? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see that? The the, the connection there that we have a merciful and faithful high priest, and so we need to come to his throne of grace so that we might receive what? Mercy. You go to a merciful high priest, what do you get? Mercy. And so this is so comforting to know that, that while God works all things together for good, right, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose... We know that our sorrow will ultimately work out for our benefit and God's glory. This is so encouraging to have the assurance that our ultimate benefit does not prevent Jesus from being a compassionate friend in our trial. Enjoy that. Appreciate that. Milk that. Right? I also think it's interesting, and take this maybe one step further, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, same context. It says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. What does that mean? Jesus is a spitting image of God. Jesus is God. And that means that God also weeps with us. You could, you could actually put in there in verse 35, God wept. God wept. God is not some detached, emotionless, stoic, million miles away, couldn't care less what we're going through, somehow indifferent to our pain and suffering. No, he is moved by human pain. He's moved by sorrow. He enters into our pain and sorrow, and he grieves with us. He feels our pain. And again, the emotion that he expresses, God has emotion. It's one of the, I mean, we have emotion, right? We were created in the image of God. That's one of the communicable attributes of God, right? It means you can catch it. Right? Incommunicable. You, you, like God's holy, right? We, we, we can't be, or, or God's omniscient, omnipresent, all that stuff. We can't be those things, but we can be what? Have emotion. Why? Because God has emotion. And that emotion that he expresses is evidence of how much he, what? Loves us. Notice verse 36. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. And if he loves me so much, if he loves you so much, sometimes we say, well, well, why is he letting me go through this? Why does he seem like he doesn't care? And again, I think this whole story could be viewed through the lens of, of how to cling to Christ by faith in times of crisis. I mean, you could teach this whole passage about what can we learn about clinging to Christ by faith in times of crisis, this was a crisis for these ladies. And we, we, we need to never think that God is late. He's always on time. 
Again, William McDonald said this, God's delays are not God's denials. If our prayers are not answered immediately, perhaps he is teaching us to wait. And if we wait patiently, we will find that he will answer our prayers in a much more marvelous way than we ever anticipated. Isn't that true? You've had that experience, haven't you? So waiting on God's plan at God's pace strengthens our faith. And that's what he was doing with Mary and Martha. And then lastly, let's look quickly the faith of the spectators. Not only was he concerned about the disciples' faith and Mary and Martha's faith, he was also concerned about the faith of the Jews who were there mourning the loss of Lazarus. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, angered, outraged, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Again, his, his holy wrath, his, his righteous rage was directed towards sin and death and ultimately toward the one who was behind it all, who he had come into the world to defeat and destroy. Who's that? Satan. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, also became a man, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, knowing that the enemy had done this. This was the enemy's work. And in the words of John Calvin, he said he came as a champion who prepares for conflict against Satan himself. Now, tombs in those days, they were carved out of limestone. You've probably seen pictures, right? Caves in the side of a hill or under the ground with a large stone, right, that was rolled in front of it or placed over the opening of the grave. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the sea, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. They didn't embalm bodies like the Egyptians. They just wrapped them loosely in cloths with spices wrapped in there. And so Jesus had to remind her of the original message that he sent back to her when he received the news that Lazarus was, gonna, was sick. Verse 41, notice what he did. They removed the stone, and what did he do? He prayed. He raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus didn't ask God to raise Lazarus from dead. He'd already done that, probably on his journey back, right? Maybe those two days he was waiting to come. He'd already prayed. He'd already asked God to, to bring him back to life through him. So he thanked him for already answering his prayers to do so. But the reason why he prayed out loud was so that the unbelieving bystanders would believe that God actually was his father and that he actually was his obedient son who, who lived to bring him honor and glory. So he wanted, he wanted them to, to hear the exchange between he and his father. And then look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, 
bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this scene is impossible to exposit, okay? How are you going to explain that? I guess I'll just go on record with all the other Bible teachers throughout church history who have suggested of Jesus that if Jesus hadn't mentioned the name Lazarus, then all the dead people in that grave would have come out with him. So we had to call him by name, Lazarus. I don't want you guys, I want Lazarus. Because in those days, a typical tomb could have up to eight occupants. And so he had to be very specific. And and we can only imagine what it must have looked like to see this this mummified guy, you know, doing one of these deals or, or, you know, shuffling out or crawling out or maybe even being levitated out by the power of God because he couldn't move until they unwrapped him. And as the family and friends unwrapped him, the, the funeral turned into a party. And their sorrow turned to joy. Their mourning gave way to dancing. And notice verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Little tattletales. Nee, 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 right? They just went and, and told on Jesus. And so like every other miracle Jesus performed, there was this divided response. For for many, this miracle undeniably proved the deity of Christ, and they believed in him. I mean, who else but God could call someone out of the grave after he had been dead for four days and his body was already decaying? But the others were still convinced, or still not convinced, I should say, and they went and told the Pharisees, which resulted as we're going to see in the next chapter, in them adding Lazarus to their hit list alongside Jesus. It was Jesus and Lazarus. we got to knock these guys off. Why? Because many were believing in Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. So let's get rid of the evidence. And again, the rebellious response of these unbelievers in the face of irrefutable evidence Confirm Christ's teaching in Luke 16. Remember about that other man named Lazarus who had died? Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16? And the rich man was begging Abraham to send Lazarus to his unsaved brothers. Luke 16. He says, I have five brothers in order that they may, he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The reason people refuse to believe in Jesus is not a lack of information, but a lack of submission to the authority of the Word of God. Listen, if you don't believe what the Bible says this morning, I don't care what else you see or hear the rest of your life, it will never convince you that Jesus is the only way of salvation. This is all all you got. If you don't believe this, you're not going to believe anything else. 
So the question is, what are you waiting for? What, what, what further proof do you need to put your faith in Christ? By the way, this was simply a preview of coming attractions, of, of the real death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think it also anticipated that final day when Jesus will return to resurrect all those who believe in him. This is what it's going to be like. He's going to say, Ken, come forth. Fred, come forth. Harry, come forth. The question is, do you know for sure that you will hear his voice calling you to come forth? Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. The question is, do you believe this? Do you, do you believe this? If you do, then you'll live forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you provided a way for us to escape the sting of death. We thank you that Christ conquered and was victorious over the grave, over sin, over death, over Satan, over hell. And so we don't have to deal with any of that when we place our faith in him alone for our salvation. Lord, I pray that you just accomplish your work in this place this morning. You put this book in the Bible so that people would believe, so that they would live. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not believing yet, that today would be the day of their salvation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.